Thank you, Dallas. Well, good morning. So this is my fourth and uh, it should be my final time to speak this year. <laughs> so, yeah, still a long time to the end of the year, right? <clears throat> I've always found it really interesting to, uh, to see how godly someone is uh, based on how uh, close to the time of speaking God is supposed to change their message. Growing up in a Assemblies of God home, in a pastor's home, there was always the, the minister, the evangelist that came in, and they would say, well, I was going to preach on this this morning, but at 5.30 this morning, God woke me up, and here's the message today, and they'd speak for an hour and a half and had slides and illustrations. I'm like, how does that work? <clears throat> but for me, it takes a long time to prepare, and I've been really grateful this year how faithful God has been that when I've asked and come to before him and prayed and you know, sought him, there's always been a message. Uh, this last August when I stepped off the stage, I had a slight sense of relief and then a sudden uh, urge of pressure of November is not that far away. Um, but to speak to the, God's faithfulness, even before I left the building that morning, I had a sense of this morning's message, or at least the title. Now, it was just the title. So, you know, then it's like, okay, well, that's a really broad subject. Uh, Even if you narrow it down into Christian culture, that's a really broad subject. So, um, you know, I started to think about it on the way out of the parking lot all afternoon. Um, But it was that night... Bill came to Basic and spoke, and his message was on idolatry. And all of a sudden it clicked. The center of the universe is God, and idolatry is putting anything else or trying to put anything else in that center. In Ezekiel 14.7 it says, For anyone of the house of Israel or of the stranger who dwells in Israel who separates himself from me and sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, then comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me. I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb. I will cut him off from the midst of my people. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Let's pray this morning. Lord, I just pray that uh, whatever shortcomings that uh, I may have in this message or in my ability to deliver it, Lord, that you would overcome them, that the truth of your word would come forth. Lord, I pray that as I uh, speak this morning, if your Holy Spirit would please uh, just highlight anywhere in our, our lives that we might have idols, either that we are setting up or have been set up in our lives that need to be torn down, God, that you would uh, assist in that. Lord, take them out, that we would serve only you and not our own purposes or our own self, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' name. So our understanding of the universe as having a central point has changed throughout history. We've always had um, ideas and theories and, you know, where is the center of the world? You know, where's the center of the universe? I think um, maybe to begin with, there was always a sense of this is kind of a closed system and the earth is pretty much all that's there. Uh, Very early on, it was kind of just a a map, flat, you know, 
we can see what we can see, and that's what it is, right? So somewhere there's not really a central point. Well, then as uh, the Greeks went on to discover, well, heavenly bodies are round, and they kind of move in a cycle, and maybe we're round too, and we're moving in a cycle, but everything seems to be moving around us. So maybe the earth is that central location. Well, that tended not to be true because then comes along Copernicus and he sees that there's uh, something else going on. And Kepler discovers that uh, there's an elliptical form, not necessarily a, a purely spherical orbit. It's more elliptical, but the sun is always one of those points on that ellipse. And so it must be the sun. And then other people discovered, okay, the earth can't be the center of it because there's other things happening and the earth seems to not have any um, reason for that. So the earth was no longer the center. It seemed to be the sun. Well, then we start to realize we're not all that's here. There's much, much bigger things going on. So maybe the galaxy is the center of the universe. Uh, and the sun's just a part of that, and so it can't be the center. And then we get to the point where we are today where maybe nothing's the center. <laughs> can't really define it. It's not really definable. It's just so big and getting bigger, there is no center. Um, of course, you know, if you live in Tulsa very long, you, you know where the center of the universe is. <laughs> Uh, so, anyway. Uh, like the, the physical world around us, we humans also have a center, don't we? And it kind of develops the same way that the historical background of how we see the physical world. Uh, our physical, our human development has kind of come along that same route. The more we know, the more we discover the broader this gets. And so I think as we start out as babes, we don't have any bearing. There is no center for us. And all of a sudden, mommy's the center. And she takes care of us, and you know, instantly we have that bond. And then uh, more and more, our, our other family members come into that uh, central point. Uh, past that, then you start getting you know, grandparents or friends or playmates and that sort of thing. And so that sphere, that center point of that um, development starts to grow and expand, and, and things come and go in that central point of who's important to you. Uh, we can see in adolescent development, then suddenly it might be um, a best friend or a best toy. You know, I, uh, I can think of many things that have replaced uh, my central theme in my life as I've grown up. You know, it, it has been... Uh, family at times, and then it's been, you know, a toy or an activity or something. Um, you know, so there's been a lot of things that over the years I thought I had to have that had to occupy that center part of me. Uh, as we grow up, as we get older, maybe it's no longer people or maybe it's no longer things, but maybe it's satisfaction in, in a job or in a, a career developing relationships of, of different kinds, not just uh, those um, of adolescent nature. They're, they're much deeper. They're much, they go beyond that. 
past that, then you get into family relationships, starting your own family, and those things become central. Uh, and this all becomes a part of who we are and that underlying belief of, of how we see the world. Uh, other things... Um, other things that kind of shape that, you know, there are activities that we might get into that we might get a little distracted with. We might get a little too into. We might go um, maybe beyond some people's comfort level with the, our engagement in it. And that might be something that we tend to call an idol in our lives. That might be something that other people uh, would see as an idol. And I can certainly say um, perhaps you know some things that you struggle with in your life that you know maybe you'd spend too much time in an activity or you spend uh, too much money on something or you uh, it just it probably takes too much of your time uh, and I certainly think all of us could look at other people and say yeah they spend too much time on that uh, too much money and too much effort on that so um, I think this morning maybe we should think of it a little different though. I'm going to get these arrows right at some point. (laughs) It's tempting to call prolonged focus an idol. So we all know those people that spend too much time on something or spend too much uh, effort on something. But perhaps it's not idolatry. Perhaps we mislabel that. Perhaps that's more of a distraction or, or a care of this life. Deep interest or infatuations and things or people, it may seem like idolatry to one person, but then again, to other people, it may be expertise. It may be something that somebody comes to to you and and says, I I realize you have this interest, you have this um, ability, you know, could you help me with it? You know, maybe it's good for some, maybe it's, you know. But and it could also be that maybe nobody sees any value in it. Maybe it's not an expertise, but maybe it's still not an idol. Maybe it is just a distraction or a care of this life. We're still to be on guard against these things because they may well drag us down. They may well take our attention off of what we should be doing and that righteousness that we are supposed to be seeking. But they may not be the idol that we think they are. And prayer and reflection on this led me to really think about idolatry and that it might be something much deeper. In our modern reasoning, we can certainly look back at ancient times and think how silly it is for people to worship wood and stone, objects that they've made. But there had to be much more to do that someone going so deep into uh, believing into these things to be able to worship them and to really think about if you've made something, how then would you sacrifice yourself to it? And how would you sacrifice your children to it? It's got to be more than just some radical idea or some idea, surface idea that, yeah, this this is worth worshiping. It had to be something much, much deeper. I don't know many golf or football fanatics that would be willing to sacrifice their children. I believe there must be something much deeper in these people's belief than just blind ignorance and adherence to false teachings. Along with our developing range of interests, 
those things that we decide we like and we like to do, there are those underlying belief systems. Those belief systems are where these idols can be formed. We create these through our experience and our observations. These belief systems help us understand the world around us and give us the tools that we need to function in the world. These beliefs are deep within us, and everything is colored and filtered by them. That's one reason that our salvation experience can be so transformative. It wrecks those belief systems. All of a sudden, we get the sense of what I've believed and what I hold true is against God. And you can see the truth of him. That changes everything. That's why salvation is so transformative. We can see the examples of Abraham. We can also see the examples of Jesus. And someone giving up a child. It's much deeper than an infatuation or an interest. If God was just interested in us, I don't think the story would work the same. In ancient times, these idols represented what these people held as sacred. This was not out of balance, interest, or infatuation. These people knew exactly what they were doing and why they were doing it. They had good reason for their devotion, and they created the gods that made their world make sense. Our understanding today doesn't maybe seem to give weight to that idea. I got it. We look at Aaron's answer to Moses about how the calf came about. Oh, you know, we just poured all the gold in and this came out. We also look at Elijah mocking the the prophets of Baal. We can see that that's kind of what they deserved was the ridicule. But they really believed it. I was taught as a youngster how silly it was to pray to wood, stone, or metal, to intercede to false gods. I was convinced that all these people, they must have been dealing with a few cards, a few uh, less than a deck. You know, I mean, it was just, they're not dealing with a full deck. But thinking about issues in such a superficial way might undermine the Bible's warnings against it and it, really how deep it goes. We might be looking at it too lightly. Surely we've overcome the vice of idolatry, similar to how leprosy is now back world, um, third world um, things. They're not today's issues. They're not the things that we deal with. You know, those are the things that we see idol worship being, you know, tribal. We see them being, you know not really a part of our normal culture. Modern cultures recognize that most of the gods that were worshipped, we can now explain through scientific things why things happen. So that, you know, these people might have worshipped, you know, gods for fertility, or they might have worshipped for uh, reasons of crops, you know, coming in. They might have worshipped for victory over enemies. And really we can kind of see in nowadays, well, Crops come in because you plant, you fertilize, and you water. Or, you know, things happen because you plan. Or, you know, we might have uh, reasons that we can understand today that maybe they didn't understand back then. But no less, they believe these things strongly. Um, but in our modern culture, there are things that we do worship 
In our modern age, we should be able to look deeply into our potential idols and not just gloss over things that we can justify. The idols of the past were about provision, providence. They were about victory. They were about knowledge of the future. They are about warding off evil. There are a lot of things in our world today that take care of those same things that we look to to take care of those same things. So we don't maybe pray to a stone or metal god, but we do have things that we rely on, that we believe in. Really think about what you would be willing to sacrifice your children over, or yourself. I think in today's environment, we can certainly look to abortion. I think that's truly an idol, not unto itself, but a a sense of getting away from our consequences of sin. Abortion truly is a sacrifice of a child. Money. The love of money is the root of all evil, but don't we need money in in a secure world? Don't we need to have income? Surely we do. I mean, surely we need it. But this is one of those, it's a filter. Is it tainting how you see God? Do you need to see God through the filter of money? I think a prosperity gospel may be the ultimate view of that here. The idea that economics will solve the issues in our world is maybe the world's view of an idolatrous situation. But perhaps a prosperity gospel is the Christian version of an idol, that we trade the cross for cash. Education can become an idol. I think uh, my dad often said, you know, he really loved education. He was, he is an educator, has always loved education, pushed it. Um, but he said, you know, after World War II, it was a, a huge push to go into colleges. He's, he, you know, often said, if you don't have a college education, coming out of a lower class situation is almost impossible. Um, but that view that education solves all issues can become an idol. If we certainly take a look at someone's faith and think, well, their faith is simple because they're simple because they haven't been educated, I think we've created an idol in that. Politics, that's a huge idol. Patriotism. If we get tainted by the idea that because we're American or because we're this or because we're that, this is, you know, this is the Christian way to be. God has been well abused by all sides in this area. Cultural systems. Western democracy has freed more of humanity than any other system of governance. Now, I can see because of this, you know, we have an idea of Western philosophy and how to raise kids and everything, and I can see in this myself, I have a great love for my family, can often draw off analogies out of, you know, how God loves me is how I can love my kids, and I see how I love my kids, and I can, you know, adopt that as how God sees me, and that grieves, you know, gives me a lot of great love, uh, peace about uh, how he loves me. But I do have to remember that the American version of family hasn't always been the standard. So I have to be really careful that I don't read my own desires for myself and my family into scriptural truth that's not really there. 
Sexuality and relationships. We, see, we have seen this growing for a long time in, in our culture. And sadly, the church culture, in a lot of ways, has failed to stand up against it. And it's tainted the way that um, we see Scripture. It's tainted the way that we interact with other people. We really have to make sure on both sides of all the arguments, is this becoming an idol? Are we focusing too much on it? Are we focusing on the truth of it? My final one here is self-worth. A denial to follow the Holy Spirit in cleaning out the unrighteousness and follow Christ to the cross. A belief that we aren't all that bad. Perhaps our initial salvation was good enough and, and seeking real righteousness. Yeah, I think I'm good for now. Perhaps we've done all that we need to do. Perhaps we're just going to get by on what we've done. Or perhaps that we have, what we have done is what we deserve now. What we're getting is what we deserve. And we're just going to have to live out to a miserable end. This is the sense that perhaps we think a little too much of ourselves. Or on the other hand, perhaps we think too little. And that's become an idolatrous situation we, we see God and we see Scripture through this filter, and it's wrong. Of course, the real focus of the idolatry is self. If we do not follow the true God, then we make the God that we think we like or that we think we deserve. The real center of our universe is self. The examples given are kind of like the worship services, the offerings, and the sacrifices given to the idols. They must ultimately appease us. We must actually think, okay, that's good enough. Do we have enough education? If we do, we've satisfied the idol. If we don't, we seek more education, money, self-worth, on and on and on. We also feel that others should make sacrifices and offerings to us. Many times we can become inwardly focused if we feel we've been slighted, abused, or neglected. All these feelings and misdirected loyalties lead to chaos, confusion, and conflict with others and with God. When God created the world, he set it in order according to his plan. His holiness and his righteousness dictate this. We read his glory is revealed in what he's created. And as the children of Israel were told not to worship idols as a part of the commandments in order that they remain in covenant with God, we too are urged to stay away from idols all throughout Scripture. If we seek only God and not other idolatrous interests, we will know him in truth. We will see his character and we can strive to be like him. By learning to worship him only and putting nothing else in his place, we can gain clarity about who he is. There are good reasons to stay away from idols. First, he is the only true God, and he says, only worship me. Second, everything else is fleeting. Everything else passes away. 
So God desires us to know him and to have a relationship with him. And worshiping anyone or anything else takes away from that relationship. Worshiping any other than God either replaces him or replaces him as the center and takes our attention away from him. He is not a God among gods. He cannot be replaced. We cannot esteem some ideal and worship God. We cannot put God on a scale and see where things go. It doesn't work that way. God is first, only, and at the top. Everything else is down the list. And by putting him first, we get the order right and he can lead us in relationship. Because of this relationship, Abraham found Canaan. The children of Israel found the promised land. David found the throne. And we can be a part of his kingdom. Breaking this down, God is holy and therefore relationship with him has minimum requirements. God's laws are not to keep us from him, but to show us the only way to him. Otherwise, he is completely unapproachable, but in his love, he's made a way. My final thoughts this morning are how important it is the focus of uh, idolatry is in Scripture. All the way through, there are warnings about idols. These warnings are not to everybody throughout Scripture, but they're to God's chosen people. See, the warnings are to God's people because it's kind of a given that lost people will follow idols. The constant warnings come, and yet constant failure happens on the part of God's chosen people. So idol worship must be far more powerful and deceptive than perhaps we give it credit. We are left in this world, but we're not to be a part of this world. By adopting and mingling the philosophies and the entertainment of this world, we weaken ourselves and we muddy the waters. We can also find false gods in the church. All we have to do is to trade our desire for God, to know God, with the desire to create the God we want. Second Timothy talks about this. Second Timothy 3 talks about people always learning, but never able to come to the truth. We can seek after ministries and movements and people with more zeal than we can seek after righteousness and relationship with God. When this happens, we can just as easily, this can just as easily happen in church culture as it can happen within the individual. We must be aware If we decide to coddle sinners into Christ, or perhaps we try to do it with a less than honest message, not true, preach true righteousness, this can happen. Or if we trade real righteousness and seeking the Holy Spirit with a movement that perhaps we we enjoy or we get a sense of peace out of, we've created false doctrine, we've created a false God that we're worshiping. 
Our complete obedience to God is what is required to have fellowship with him. He is gracious, merciful, and patient in this process. As we need to look deeper into ourselves and see areas that are still dedicated to false gods that need to be torn down. In fact, we may have lingering idols in our, in our lives, or perhaps there's new ones starting to form or develop. We need to deal with these things. Let the Holy Spirit really get into our lives and see where those belief systems are taking us or where they have taken us and need to come back. Many things internally and externally will try to influence us in how we believe. In all this, we must not put God on the scales of opinion to be weighed out. We must accept him as above it all and allow him to show us how the scales work. Let's pray this morning. Lord, I pray that your scripture is clear.